there's a question that all of us will need to answer at one time or another. It's the most important question we will ever answer. It's more important than what is my calling or who should I marry and where should we live? It's even more important than the question, who am I going to vote for in November? <laughs> it's the most important question any of us will ever answer. We're either going to answer it now or on the last day. The question is this, who is Jesus Christ to me? Who is Jesus Christ to me? We get a little help answering that question in the story of Ruth when we meet the person named Boaz. We're now two weeks into this summer preaching series, My Name Is, and we're looking at these people in Scripture that sometimes get overlooked, sometimes we know their names, often we don't. And tonight we're going to look at the person named Boaz. And I'm just going to scratch the surface of the book of Ruth and the person of Boaz. There's so much good material out there. What's the name of the book, Pastor Jackie, The Gospel of Ruth? There's this fantastic book called The Gospel of Ruth by Carolyn Custis James. I recommend that to you if you're interested in Ruth after tonight's sermon. Or just go home and read the whole book. It's only four chapters. I'm going to touch on a few illustrations, a few points in the book of Ruth, because it's, we're going to look at Boaz to help us answer the question, who is Jesus Christ to me? Because when we ask the question, who was Boaz to Ruth, it's the very same answer to the question. Who was Boaz to Ruth is the same answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ to me? And we're going to look at three aspects of the relationship between Boaz and Ruth to help us answer the question, who is Jesus Christ to me? The first one, the first thing we notice is that he is our only hope. He's our only hope. Let's read about how it played out for Ruth and Boaz. We're going to start at the beginning, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, it's hard to overstate just how desperate a situation Naomi and Orpah and Ruth found themselves in in Moab. They were absolutely desperate. To help you wrap your mind around their situation, let me just try to offer an illustration. Let's just say there's an American family, a mom and a dad and two sons, and the, the economy totally collapses in America. So they spend their last few dollars on a tank of gas, and they drive all the way to Mexico, where they've heard there's some day labor jobs that they might be able to get. 
So they drive to Mexico, and um, suddenly the husband dies once they get there. And the two sons who are getting some day labor jobs, well, they do what young sons do, and they fall in love with some local girls. They fall in love with some Mexican girls. But tragically, the two sons die as well. So suddenly you have an American mom and her two Mexican daughters-in-law. And the situation's pretty desperate. Now, now let's go back to Moab and Israel. Did that help you wrap your mind around it a little bit? Let's go back to Moab and Israel where the situation is even more desperate because in those times, women really had no standing in society without their men. What's even worse is that when Naomi left Israel, she and her husband sold their land. So they have no land, they have no jobs, and now these women have no men to protect them or to provide for them. And the situation is pretty bad. And here's these three women all alone. And Naomi speaks to Ruth and she gives her this amazing fork in the road moment. A lot of people miss this when they read Ruth. There's this decision that Ruth has to make in the face of total desperation. She's given a choice between going back to her Moabite family and the gods they worship or traveling with Naomi back to Israel in hope of something new. Let's read about it. It's in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. You'll see it up there on the screen. This is a famous line in the book of Ruth, and here's what it says. Naomi says to Ruth, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where I go, you, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. This is a famous line in scripture and a lot of people focus on it and they focus on the loyalty that Ruth shows to her mother-in-law. And that is absolutely an aspect of this. But when I see Ruth's declaration, I think it is a declaration, not just of loyalty, but of hope. She has a suspicion, a hope that there is something in the God this family worships that's different. You see, she had grown up in Moab, worshiping the gods of the Moabites, but then she met this family who had come from another nation. These two sons and their parents, and there was something special about this household. There was something special about the God that they worshiped. And even when all the men of the household die, Ruth says, I've got a fork in the road decision to make here. I can go chase after the options that have been presented to me, the gods of my people, or I can follow this inclination, this hope in the God that my now deceased husband believed in. You see, Ruth understood that she only had one hope and she was willing to pack up her stuff and walk with her mother-in-law all the way across the desert. Can you picture these two ladies? The willingness of Ruth to hike across the desert from Moab back to Israel. Why? Because she hoped. She knew she had one hope and she started pursuing it. And let's find out who she met following this inclination, following this hope. Let's see who she met. She met her Redeemer. 
That's the second aspect of the relationship. When we ask the question, who is Jesus Christ to me? The first one is that he's our only hope. Oh, sure, we might have other options. We might have other gods that this world has offered to us. But at some point, we have to have that fork in the road decision where we say, I forsake all those gods, maybe even the gods of my family of origin. And I want to pursue this other God, this, my, this only hope, because he will become, he is, he's presented as my redeemer. Well, let's just meet the redeemer that Ruth meets when she travels back, when she travels to Israel with her mother-in-law. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now look at this next line. This is one of those fingerprints of the Holy Spirit where he's telling us to pay attention. He's telling a larger story than, than would just be told in the Old Testament. Where is Ruth's redeemer from? It says, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Now, do you find that interesting? That Ruth was willing to, to bet on a hope, on an inclination that she would meet her redeemer. And where does, where does he come from? Bethlehem. We're on to something here. You see the larger story that's being told? Now, I want you to go home and read Ruth because what happens next is very interesting. Ruth begins working on this man's farm. And everything up to this point in the story, Ruth is in a, a mindset of scarcity. It's a famine. There's no food. But all of a sudden, she finds herself on this property of this man from Bethlehem. And there's grain everywhere. It's, it's written in such a way that you just can't help but seeing the abundance Ruth must have thought, you know, she had found the mother load. But interestingly, Boaz begins extending grace to Ruth. Remember, Ruth is a Moabite. She's a foreigner. The relationship that Israel had with Moab was worse than the relationship the U.S. has with Mexico in my illustration earlier. The Israelites and the Moabites were actually enemies. So here's this foreign refugee migrant who's made her way onto this worthy, this wealthy man's field. And here's what Boaz could have said. Get off my property, foreigner. But you know what he does instead? He commands his men, he commands the workers to protect her, to circle around her, to look out for her. And by the end of the day, those men who he had been asked to protect her, they come back with a report to Boaz, their boss. Some of you know the story. They're really impressed. They've been working hard all day, but they say to Boaz, she's working really hard. She's working just as hard as we do, but she only took one water break. That's what it says in chapter two. They're really impressed, and Boaz is beginning to really take notice of her. He's extended his grace by offering to protect her with his men. She was quite vulnerable as a young woman, as a foreigner, and he protects her. But his grace doesn't stop there. At the end of the day, let's look at what happens. Verse 14, uh, Ruth 2, verse 14. This is the end of the day now when she's worked on Boaz's property. And at mealtime, 
Boaz said to Ruth, come here, eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Now this is actually quite a sensation. This foreign girl has made her way onto Boaz's property. He's not only not kicked her off, he's offered protection for her. And then he does something that probably got all the people in town talking. It's mealtime now at the end of the day. And he, not only has he extended all this grace and protection to her, he invites her to come and sit at his table. And not only that, are you seeing the Holy Spirit's fingerprints on this story? He breaks bread with her. He has her dip it in wine. Does this sound familiar? He has offered to bring her to his table of grace. He's protected her. Not only that, later on in the story, he arranges for all the land that Naomi and her family had sold off. He arranges for that land to be bought back so that Ruth and Naomi can have a place to live. He has redeemed their lives by his grace. You know that song we sang earlier, I'm no longer a slave to fear? There's this wonderful line in there. And it says, I've been born again into a family. Did you hear that? I've been born again into a family. His blood flows through my veins. That's probably a little bit how Ruth felt. When he invited her to his table of grace, when he bought back the land that her mother-in-law had forfeited so that she could have a new life, suddenly Ruth has a new life and she's now part of this family. Jesus Christ has offered that very same grace to us. The Bible says not only that we are foreigners and strangers and aliens to God because of our sin, it says that we are enemies, enemies of God because of our sin. And when we approach God, he would have every right to come and say to us, get off my land. But he doesn't do that. He offers protection for us. He invites us to his table of grace. He breaks bread. He pours wine. Why is he showing us that? Because he's showing us the great cost that he would be willing to pay to redeem our lives. It cost him a lot more than it cost Boaz to buy that land. It cost God his very own life, the life of his son, Jesus Christ. And he's offered us that cup of wine like Boaz offered it to Ruth. He has redeemed us. Jesus Christ is our only hope, and he is our redeemer. Do you know that? Well, there's a third aspect of the relationship that I want to point out from the story. And if you're a new Christian, if this is new language for you, this third one, it's going to sound really weird, okay? I just want to tell you that. It's going to sound weird, but hear me say it, and then I want to explain it to you because it's actually quite beautiful. Who is Jesus Christ to us? He is who Boaz was to Ruth. He's our only hope. He's our redeemer. And he will become our husband. Our husband. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 13, just the first part of it. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. 
This is now the full extent of Boaz's grace to this foreigner, to this person who didn't even belong there. Boaz didn't have to do any of this. He could have kicked her off his land, but he protected her. He invited her to his table, and eventually he married her. He entered into a covenant relationship with young Ruth by his grace. He fell in love with her. Not only did he want to offer her his grace, he offered her his love, his everlasting love. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ offers for us. It must have sounded really weird to Jesus' disciples when he started using this language with them. He started talking to them before he went away, before he even died on the cross. He started talking with them about being the bridegroom and how they are the bride. And at the Last Supper, he used language that can only be described as an engagement. Can you imagine right now if I got down on my knee and, and opened up a box with a diamond ring in it and asked you all to be my bride? I'd probably make the newspapers tomorrow. <laughs> You'd be like, what? Well, that's what Jesus was doing with his disciples. And then check this out. In Revelation chapter 19, the, the, uh, the, the, the evangelist John, he gets a vision of heaven. He gets a vision of the day when all of us are going to be united with Jesus forever. John actually got a window into eternity, and he got to see what it's going to be like when all of us meet Jesus. Have you heard this? Here's what it says, Revelation 19, beginning with verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are, the, are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, when God showed John what it's going to be like when we all are united with Jesus, he said it's going to be a marriage between us, his bride, and him, our bridegroom. He's trying to show us how much he loves us, that he loves us so much he would enter into a covenant relationship with us. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, okay, this revelation image, it's from, you know, it's from revelation, so clearly it's a metaphor, obviously, right? You, you don't want me to really believe that we're going to get married to Jesus. Well, here's what the Bible says about that. The Bible says that our human marriages the ones that some of you are representing in this room, you actually have human flesh and blood relationships in marriage. The Bible says that those marriages are the metaphor for that real marriage which will happen in eternity. In the book of Ephesians, Paul, he's talking to husbands and wives. Maybe you know it. It's Ephesians chapter 5. And he's giving instruction for husbands and wives and how to serve one another, how to lay down their lives for one another, how to do mutual submission with one another. And he's giving this practical advice for husbands and wives. But then this phrase just jumps off the page in Revelation 5 where he says, this is a profound mystery. And I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. What Paul is showing us is that our human marriages are the metaphor 
for what was really going to take place in eternity. When all of us, when Christ's church are united with Jesus forever. He will be our eternal covenant keeper. He loves us that much. So I want you to ask yourself the question tonight. Who is Jesus Christ to me? Is he your only hope? Or are you still looking at the other options that the world has presented, the gods that the world presents? Or is he your only hope like Boaz was for Ruth when she set out on that journey to come home? Is he your redeemer? You realize when you come to this table, when, when, when we realize that Jesus broke bread and poured out wine, that it cost him his very life in order to redeem ours, is he your redeemer or do you still think you might be able to save yourself? And lastly, are you anticipating eternity with him forever in a relationship that's as close as a marriage, a covenant of grace and of love and of harmony, the best kind of marriage. Or when you picture your future, do you think you're going to just go it alone? Who is Jesus Christ to you? Amen. The Lord be with you. And also Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks and praise to the Lord our God. Surely it is right at all times and in all places to give thanks to the Lord our God. And as we prepare to come to this table, the one that has been set for us, let's first pray just as Jesus himself has taught us to. Join me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.